You're listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor Bill Carpenter. We're back in our series in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3 again today, looking at verses 9 through 21. Where John writes, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's word. Thank you, Pastor. We are still in chapter 3 of John. We are talking about the encounter with Nicodemus. Um, And Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus uh, some really challenging things. He's saying some things to Nicodemus that are really kind of turning his world upside down. We hear it very differently on our side of the story because we are at a different place, all right? But when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus here, Nicodemus has not heard these things before. And so this is really shaking his world up quite significantly here uh, as they're having this encounter. Now, hopefully last Sunday, uh, one of our takeaways was that being born again cannot mean that you need more morality or more religion in your life life. And certainly Nicodemus had all of that. In fact, the way that Jesus is talking to Nicodemus here, what he's saying is that the new birth is really a challenge to all of this morality and religion that you've been banking on. Morality is not bad. Religion is not bad. But when you bank on it to be your salvation, then we have a problem. And so he's saying, you've got all of this. You've got this morality. You've got this religion in the world, Nicodemus. And what you need now is to be born again, all right? So we're going to keep looking at this metaphor um, of, of, of being born again. Jesus doesn't say here, uh, well, you know, Nicodemus, you're an awfully, awfully moral person. You're at least three quarters of the way to heaven here, and so you need some kind of supplement. You need just a little, like, kick here, you know, to get you kind of over the line here, so to speak, all right? Um, you need something like... We take vitamin supplements. We take all kinds of things to get us a little bit more of what we're trying to get, you know, and and we utilize that, believing that this is the answer. This is the little magic piece. This is that one thing that's going to, like, catapult me into being this vigorous, healthy individual. And so Jesus is trying to say to, to Nicodemus here, you just need to be born again. Nothing you have done counts. 
Like all this other stuff doesn't add up and get you there, all right? So, so we see this not as a call from, from Jesus to more of the same stuff, uh, more of the same kind of structure, but this is all a challenge to everything that Nicodemus knows. So it's really, really difficult, I think, for this man. And we want to be sensitive to that as we talk about this. This man's having a hard time here, but Jesus is staying direct, and Jesus is staying pointed, and he's staying on, on point here with Nicodemus because this is what matters. This is what is most important, all right? So the question for us is, can, can, can we see what the good news is, all right? No matter how good you are, no matter how pulled together you are, no, no matter what you've got good going on, you've got to be born again. And I think that's the message for a lot of us. The, for a lot of you, you've come into the kingdom of God. And, and yes, you came in broken like all the rest of us. But you have been allowing the Holy Spirit and God's word to bring healing and wholeness to your life. And maybe there are places where there is conflict in, inside of you etern- internally even yet. But you are growing and you are maturing here. But we have to be careful as Christians that we don't put all of our eggs in a basket of works are of performance, are of good things, all right? And, and that we lean on that to be our salvation, all right? So this message also is for those of us who are just coming in and we're bringing in brokenness, all right? We're bringing in our mess. It's okay, all right? You need to be saved too. We all need this salvation of Jesus. So this is not a call just to, to more moral stuff. It's not a call uh, to, to any other kinds of things in this earth that we might have been leaning on as we were coming in. But Jesus is directly saying, you need to be able to not only see the kingdom of God, but to enter the kingdom of God. And that's kind of where we're going to start this morning is in that verse 3. He's saying that no one enters the kingdom um, of God unless they are born again, all right? So the question that we posed last Sunday was basically, who is the new birth for? And we have to run ahead here just a little bit in what David read to you this morning to John 3.16 to see that, that it doesn't matter which side of the coin you flip on. It doesn't matter what the experiences of your life have been, positive are it negative? It doesn't matter where you have been going. You have to be born again because God so loved the world. He loved all of us in whatever place, whatever state we are in. We all come in at a level plane here, and that is at the foot of the cross. And we all need the same answer. We all need God's antidote, which is the blood of Jesus. And so we come together regardless of which side of the coin we're on, all right? And we come because we all need this. The whole world needs this salvation, this this born-again experience that we're talking about here. Now, let me ask you a second question and maybe a third uh, here today, maybe more. But let's just go through this a little bit and let's, let's see what the Holy Spirit might speak to us this morning from the understanding of what God is saying through his son Jesus to Nicodemus, all right? Where does it come from, all right? We, we know who it's for now. We've determined that it's for all of us, all right? Every one of us needs to be born again. 
But where does this new birth, this, this, this experience come from, all right? And remember, we talked about last Sunday that for some of you, it may be a, a specific point in time. You may have a date on your calendar. You may have a time on your clock where it was an experience for you. But others of us don't have that, all right? So being born again wasn't something that we can actually go point to a particular moment in time and say, aha, there it was, and now I'm sure. But it's something that has happened in a period of time for us, and somewhere along the way, it's connected for us, all right? And God is trying through, through this encounter of Jesus and Nicodemus to bring Nicodemus to that place of it connecting for him, all right? And so this may be a bit of an odd question for some of us, but it, 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 it's going to be found in the Scriptures. It's not necessarily going to be found just in this encounter with Nicodemus. I want to take you to a, a few other places here and talk about what the New Testament tells us about this experience of the new birth, all right? So Jesus says you're going to be born again, and in John 3, 5, he says you've got to be born again to enter into the kingdom. And what's remarkable I think about all of this, um, as some of you might know from your studies yourselves, is that unlike the synoptic Gospels, unlike Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, John very seldom uses this term, kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, very rarely does he use this particular ter uh, term. And uh, this is w about the only place where it even comes up in John's Gospel here. And I think that makes it a bit significant, all right? And so we want to look at that for just a moment, all right? Now, what would Nicodemus have thought of when Jesus uses this term, you must be born again to be able to enter into the kingdom of God? It would have been, I think, very intriguing for Nicodemus uh, because he's a Pharisee, number one. He would have thought, like his, his mindset would have been that the kingdom of God uh, is something that is future, all right? It's out there, and that's right, okay? He, he would have thought of the resurrection as at an end time. He would have thought about the, the, the new kingdom of God that the Messiah was going to bring in to be at an end time when everything was going to be made right, and that's right, okay? Follow me here, though, okay, please? The Greeks... Many of the Greeks believed that history was not linear, okay? It, it, that it, that it, it wasn't like it was going someplace, but that it had a, a, a cyclical kind of um, um, dynamic about it. And, and what it, it, it was was that it was something that would repeat itself, like it would go in cycles, if you would. And so every so often there was a kind of an earth event, all right? Uh, where the world would get purged and they, it would get regenerated or it'd get burned or something. I mean, they had this idea that, that this sort of cataclysmic kind of thing happens and that when that happens, history would start all over again, all right? Um, and, of course, that, that would just be the, 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 the dynamic that would go on is the world would decline, decline, decline. This catalytic kind of thing would happen, and it would have a cycle to it. it would, the world would reboot. It would start over, kind of, and that, that would happen again, and then the world would decline, 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 all of that, all right? And so it would keep happening that way, all right? Now, it's kind of like your computer. When you reboot your computer, you, it gets all messed up, so you unplug it, you, you plug it back in, later it reboots, it comes back up. Uh, and what happens, though, is that it basically goes back 
to what it was before. It doesn't really move forward, okay? Now, Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verses 28 and 29, says something that I think is very important for us to understand here. He says, at the renewal of all things, in other words, when all things are made new, all right, he uses a word. As I said last week, Jagger's probably much better with the Greek than I could ever be, all right? So he might be able to help you to understand a lot of this a bit more. But the word that, it, that, that Matthew uses is the word polygenesia, all right? Now, he, he is saying when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, everyone, everyone who has left houses, who has left brothers, who have left sisters, who has left father, our mother, our children, our fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life, all right? Now, at the polygenesia, that's when the Son of Man sits on the throne, that's when the kingdom of God comes, he uses a Greek word here, this, this Greek word that I'm talking about, and it was a very technical term, all right? But he uses it in a very completely different kind of way, all right? What he's saying is basically, all right, all of these philosophers you've been listening to, they're all wrong, all right? There is only one polygenesia, all right? There is only one regeneration of the world. And it won't be just a reset of history just to go on declining again, all right? It will be one generation, regeneration, and that will be the end of all death, all suffering, all sin, all evil, all of those things. All evil suffering, every tear will be wiped away. It will be gone, all right? It will be wiped away when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, all right? So the kingdom is not a cycling thing, all right, that keeps reverting back to the same old way. Now, to really understand this, we got to look at some of the things that Paul says, and Paul makes a remarkable little side note in this whole thing in Titus chapter 3. Paul is talking about the new birth, and he talks about the new birth by saying this. He, meaning Jesus, saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. This is how we are saved, all right? This is the new birth. Whom he poured out on us, all of us, generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, but listen, that first term that is used in Titus, that washing of regeneration, it's this same word, palingenesia, all right? So see, see what the text here in John 3 is hinting at, but Paul kind of makes really clear for us, he, he like really brings it out, is, is an answer to where is this new birth from? Where does it come from? And here's the answer. It comes from the future. All right, the, the new birth is the power that God is going to use to regenerate the world. And it's brought into the present for us. It's not complete, of course, all right? It's only partial. It, it's, kind of like, it's kind of like time travel. I remember the first time I read H.G. Wells and The Time Machine, I was just, I was just taken by that. My goodness, if I could travel in time, if I could go ahead, 
Oh my word, I would be going all over the place, all right? And, and, and here's the thing, though. It's kind of like that, but in the reverse. This is the future coming to us now. We're being born again. The kingdom of God is coming to us. It's happening on a level right now. And that's renewing, that's regenerating power for us uh, that comes from God. This God who is going to heal everything and remove all evil and all sin, he comes into our heart now and he establishes life and kingdom in us now. It's only partial, but it's actual. It's real, all right? And so that's what it means to be born again, to have life come into us. And to live out of that life that we're being given. And so a bit of what is not yet but already is happening inside of us now. And that's why we live in this kind of of, um, angst, if you will, in this earth. Because there is still a fallen earth all around us. But we're living whole in this earth now. And we have life. Now, I realize that the things I'm saying to you right now sound really mystical. Let me... Try to make it more practical and more applicable for us, all right? What I want you to understand is that you and I should never underestimate the power of the new birth to change someone. We need to hold on to this. This reality for us, we hold on to because it's everything. It's everything here, all right? And so, well, let's look look at Peter. Some, some will tell you that Peter was soft and squishy kind of. You know, I don't really get that exactly. I think he, yeah, in some ways he is because he's like really uh, impulsive and spontaneous and, and, and all of that. Um, and, and that was the way he was. Now, Paul is the exact opposite of that almost. You know, he's like a bit more hard, you know, like maybe overly controlled, maybe abrasive in some ways, harsh in some ways. But look at both of these men. They were born again. They both had life inside of them, and they were turned into world changers by God. And here's what I want you and I to understand, that when we are born again, there is change that happens in us. A lot of things stay the same. We still have some of our normal wiring, some of our own DNA, the way we respond and the way we react and and those kinds of things, the way we relate to one another. A lot of that doesn't go away or doesn't shift necessarily, but there has to be some aspect of our lives where we begin to see that life has come in and that we have change and that we are more like the kingdom that is to come than this world because we are not citizens here. We don't live in this world as though we are a part of this world. This is the angst. We live outside of this world, yet in this world. And that's the whole piece of we are living in the already, but the not yet. All right? And so so what I want you to understand is that um, even though these men are very different from one another, And you and I might find ourselves being very different from them as models in in the Scriptures for us as leaders. We need to understand that really they are no different. They are no more promising a piece of material or project than you and I are. All right? And so we don't look at one another and make comparisons here. We understand that we are all on this equal plane when it comes to the new birth. And we are all born again, not by our own 
doing, our, our own performance, but we're born again because it comes from the future. It comes from God and what He has already done and what His plan eternally is for us. And we will catch up to it, all right? We will come to it uh, in time, all right? So I want you to understand that the new birth, all right, it's for everyone, and it really is from God, and it's from God's plan, whole plan, which is eternal and which is actually future. But we have it now, all right? So we live in this, this regenerated peace, if you will, even right now in our lives. So what I'm going to say to you is don't settle for a little bit of change as you declare that you are born again. Let this declaration inform your decision-making. Let this declaration inform your feelings. Let this declaration inform your actions, all right? You and I can change a lot. And if we are born again, there should be fruitful change taking place in our lives. There needs to be some kind of practical evidence that we are indeed living our lives out of this newness. All right? And so that's what I want to challenge you and I to. Now, given that, then what, what does this do? What does this new birth do? Let's talk about that for just a few minutes here. It's, it's fairly clear, I think, from the metaphor that, metaphor that he's using that this is an implantation of new life. All right? The old is gone. The new has come. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. All right? So there's, a, there's a, an implantation of a new life here. It's a divine life that's implanted in you and I now. All right? So we receive this by repentance and by faith. All right? So now, uh, one of the, the probably more controversial parts of the passage is where Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, you must be born of water and of the Spirit. And as a lot of you know already that um, some churches say this, they actually say, oh, that means if you want to be regenerated and you want to be saved, two things have to happen. You have to have the Holy Spirit and you have to be baptized. Now, of course, the problem with that is that the word water doesn't say baptize, it says water, all right? Uh, and then some will say, oh, well, that's just a metaphor for baptism. Well, it might be. I don't think so. I think it really is more likely that the water is a metaphor for the Spirit. It's, it's more likely that it, in Jesus' background, the way he's making this statement, he's pulling from Ezekiel chapter 36 here. And that is where Ezekiel talks about the Spirit of God as water in a desert. Because in a desert... In that kind of dry place, water wasn't just life-giving. Water was life. If you didn't have water, you, you would not live, okay? And so, so in a sense, water is life itself, and that metaphor fits better to be speaking about the Spirit. And so what we're hearing here is that the new birth is having the Spirit, having life implanted in you. All right, so this is a new divine life that we are being given. And there has to be a point where something divine happens in this all. And that's what Jesus died for, yes. But you and I have to take hold of this, if you will, all right? And, 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 and he, he, he uses this metaphor um, of like a baby being born. And that is intriguing to me. I'm sure it was intriguing to Nicodemus, and he was having some problems with really kind of understanding it, all right? 
But let's talk about that for just a minute, all right? If we want to understand the, the new birth and what the new birth does, let's just stay with the metaphor that, that Jesus is using here, all right? And, and what I'm going to suggest to you is that it means that to be born again at least means a new identity, all right? When you are born again, something changes. You don't get born again and still stay in the same old identity that you had. That's what the new birth does. It gives you this new identity. Now, the reason identity is so important here is because Jesus doesn't use the, the um, well, it's an impersonal term um, of being, um, having life being implanted in us like a seed, let's say, all right? Um, He's talking here about new life coming into us like a, a baby being born. And why is that so important? I think it's important because babies are born into families. We have a new family. We have new identity and we have new family. Now, we're reading from John chapter 3. David preached to you from John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, the identity and the family are very closely tied into the new birth. All right? Now, let's look at John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He says, To all who did receive him, meaning Christ, all right, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, he gave the privilege, the right um, to become what? Children of God to be in a family, all right? Children born not of a natural descent, not of a human decision or husband's will, but born of God. Now, notice, as soon as it starts talking about this, this new birth, it talks about the rights of being children of God. And, and here's what I want you to understand. When, when you're born, we're using the image of a baby now, you're born into a family and into a name. I was born into my family. They gave me a name. I was born with a surname, all right? I didn't have a choice in that. I was a carpenter. That was the name that I was born into, so that became my identity. As I was growing up in a very small town in South Georgia, people would walk by, and they would look at me, and they would go, I know who you are. You're Buddy Carpenter's boy. In other words, that was my identity, that's what I was born into, if you will, all right? Now, what does that mean for us spiritually here? What is your identity? The identity has to be rooted in something, all right? For, for me, carpenter is my identity. It's rooted in my family and the name that they were given, and there's a huge history of that name and how it came about, and it's really unique and odd, but that is my identity, all right? And so my identity carries a sense of self, a sense of worth, all right? So it affects how I see myself. Now, if you're coming from a non-Western part of the world, probably your identity is deeply rooted in your family. All right? B because in that part of the world, you're a, you're a good person. You can feel good about yourself. You can know you're okay as long as you're fulfilling your family's responsibilities. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're saying, well, that's pretty true in the Midwest, too. And it very well may be for a number of you, okay? 
In other words, what is pleasing to your family, that is what is important. Being a good son, being a good daughter, being a good husband, being a good wife, being a good mother, being a good father. As long as you're living up to your family's expectations, you can feel good about yourself. All right? Isn't there a lot of pressure there to be able to have an identity and a value when you're having to constantly be uh, worrying about how you measure up or how you fulfill the expectations of those around you? All right. Now, if you grew up in this Western culture of ours, you don't have so strong of a family-oriented identity. All right. So, how do you feel good about yourself in that case? Well, we live in a very individualistic culture, all right? And you get to decide wh who you want to be. Um, you get to decide what you're going to do. You get to decide all these things about you. And so you decide, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to be this, I want to be that, I don't like what I am, I want to be something else, and you go after doing that. Not that there isn't a lot of pressure there, but that's a much more individualistic piece, all right? But, but don't you see how, how unique and interesting this is that to be born again means to be born of God. To be born of God is not to be born of family descent, nor of any kind of natural descent, or of any kind of human decision. You're free. Your identity changes. And you're able to function out of a completely different kind of identity than you ever have before. And for some of you, that is liberation. That is huge freedom for some of us to be able to do that. Here's what I want you to understand. I want you to get this if you don't get anything else I'm saying today. Your identity is received, not achieved. All right? That's where it lands. And that's the good message. That's the good hope of the gospel. That's the, 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 the huge message of being born again, all right? Your identity is rooted in God's love for you and the fact that God is now your father, just not your boss or just not your king. He is those things, but he's your father. And you've been born into this amazing spiritual family. And there's an unconditionality of all of this uh, where the father regards you as his son or as his daughter. And that's so different from any other kind of identity that you've been trying to get. You've got a new identity. And in my opinion, it's a very remarkable identity. And there's nothing like it anywhere else on the face of the earth. And so live in that place. Live in that goodness of who you are in Christ Jesus, all right? So again, your identity is received, not achieved, all right? Um, let me give you an example just to get this across. This is actually uh, a, a Timothy Keller example. He was visiting with someone, and he, he kind of wrote this storyline out from uh, a number of conversations with this person. But just, just hear it out and see if you identify or relate in some way to this, okay? Um, this person speaks and says, I have had five identities in my lifetime. When I was young, I grew up in a very conservative church. And I felt good about myself because I'm a good person. I'm very moral. I'm one of the good people. 
but it turned me into something of a self-righteous Pharisee. And it also put a lot of pressure on me. And so finally, I broke out. I left the church. In my search then, I started dating, started getting into romantic relationships, which were very often very heady. And at first, I felt good about myself because I was so moral. Now, I feel pretty good about myself because somebody loves me or somebody desires me. And then they said, a little later in life, I felt as long as I've got someone who really thinks I'm great, as long as I've got a partner, then I'll know I'm okay. All right? But the, the problem with that was that there was a bump in the relationship, and as soon as there was a bump in the relationship, all of a sudden, boom, now the identity is shot. All right? Now, they said... Every time something bad started to happen because I'm sticking into these relationships and staying in them, they get abusive or they just get crazy or something. I realize that I'm nobody unless somebody loves me. Oh, what a trap. What a horrible place for someone to land. And then she says, some friends said, you need to be liberated. You can't build your identity on morality, and you can't build your identity on the opposite sex. So get a career. So they went out and got an education, got a career, and then realized that I get destroyed every time in my career there's a bump. Every time something goes wrong, then it affects my identity. It starts to, to, to mess with me. So then someone else, another friend, says, so what you really need, you're working too hard, you need to start to care for people. You need to start to help people. So now this person gets very involved in doing good deeds, starts to volunteer, got involved with working with incarcerated people in prison, working with the poor, doing all of this good stuff, and then realized, I'm exhausted. Because all I'm doing is I'm still trying hard. I'm still working really hard, trying and so this is the final conclusion, all right? And this is their words. First, I thought I was somebody because I was moral. Then I thought I was somebody because I was attractive. And then I thought I was somebody because I was successful. And then I thought I was somebody because I was helpful. And then I heard the gospel, and I realized I've been trying to save myself. And these identities don't work. And then I gave my life to Christ. Amen. Listen, folks, we can identify on all of these levels here, but the reality is that just identifying is not enough. We have to be born again, all right? And so realizing that God loves me because of what Jesus has done, I'm able to receive that love. And it has nothing to do with what I've done, and it has nothing to do with what I might be able to do, all right? So... Every other identity that this person was naming had been tried based on the message of performance, all right? And after all the, the, the ups and downs and the, and the setbacks here, true identity finally comes, and that's the place of rest. My friend, you and I are busy people, and we live in a busy world, and everything around us is pushing in on us all the time. And I think sometimes, if you're like me, you take on more than you should. 
You, you start to do more than you really should be doing. It's very difficult for us to find those places of rest. It's very difficult for us to put those margins inside of our lives where we can rest. I really am convinced that until we get a good understanding of what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the identity that is provided for us, and the fact that we have been born into a family, into God's family, and He is our Heavenly Father, we'll not find the rest places that we need. We will continue to strive and work and push and perform to try to feel better about ourselves. Let's not find that place. Nicodemus, I think, probably would be a person that would be guilty of some of those things. He had done everything the way it was supposed to be done. He was trying really hard to be perfect. He was trying to keep a high moral standard. He was trying to understand things. That's why he came to Jesus. He wanted clarity. He wanted understanding. He was willing to open himself up to new things. Praise the Lord. All right? But here is a man who had performed and performed and lived out all of these things. And Jesus is saying the same thing to you and I that he said to Nicodemus. All right? You've got to be born again. Now... I've been talking about the new birth so far as if it was really pretty much uh, the same thing as conversion or a conversion moment, if you will. Um, you know, the, the, the Reformed theologians have always uh, made, a, I think, a, a very warranted and a very, um, a very good differentiation, all right, between what we do, which is repentance and faith, all right, uh, see, we turn. We turn away from sin. We turn towards God. We repent. That's what we do. We repent and, and we believe. Uh, but they make a good distinction between that and what God does, which I want you to understand, that's the new birth. All right? You don't do that. You don't get to do that. You don't decide when you're born again or how you're born again or what will get you born again. Jesus has taken care of your sin on the cross. You just need to turn and believe. But here we want to understand that, that Jesus has done an amazing work here. And technically the biblical answer when someone comes to you or I and says, What can I do to be born again? The answer is, you can't do anything. You, you can't do that. And this is what verse 8 talks about. Uh, the wind blows where it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so that it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It's really not under your control. You can't make it happen. You can do your part. But please, stop trying to do God's part. Let God be God and you be you. All right? And so we, we need to understand that there is going to be conversion happening, all right? But likely conversion is not a one moment, and certainly it's not an end period, all right? But conversion is what is happening as you are allowing transformation to take place in your life out of this new identity and being a son or daughter of God. And so I want to challenge you and I that, yes, we walk through repentance. That is very, very important, all right? 
and we do what we have to do. But let's understand, all right, that we are sorry for our sins, but Jesus uses these fascinating illustrations in here that helps us to understand that there's so much that we can't do and should not be trying to do. We just need to repent and to believe, all right? So in John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus makes a reference, and he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert. That's a really interesting reference, I think. And I'm, I'm going to have to close here pretty quick, but I want to take you through this little piece here and let you understand that what happened in the desert, the reference here is from Numbers chapter 21. And that is that, that the children of God had sinned greatly, all right? Um, Israel had sinned, and, and God sent a plague upon Israel in this time, all right? And the plague was snakes, all right? Uh, venomous snakes, and they were biting the people, and the people were dying, all right? And in a sense, this is, this is a metaphor. This is a representation of their lives. Their lives had venomous sin uh, in them. They were doing things that were contrary to what God intended and God called them to. And so the venom represents their bodies and how they're being killed in their soul here, all right? And so Jesus is making reference to this particular place because what Moses was told to do was to make this bronze serpent, this image of the very thing that was killing them, and to put it up on a pole, you know, to, to lift it up. Moses lifted up the serpent, and all they had to do was look because some of them were so sick. And, and, and so debilitated and so immobilized that they couldn't possibly go over to it and they couldn't rub it or touch it or kiss it or anything like that, all right? All they had to do was look. Tim Keller talks about this and says this is an image that represents a lot of Charles Spurgeon's conversion. I don't know if you remember his conversion or have read about it or, or not, but let me give you the really concise version here. He was struggling as a teenager with his own Christianity uh, and, and was kind of battling things. And he got up and wanted to go to church, and there was a snowstorm, so he couldn't go to his, his Baptist church. But there was a little Methodist church right around the corner, so he tried to get to that and made it to the little Methodist church. He says, even though he wasn't Methodist, he, he went in. It just happened that the pastor couldn't be there that day either, all right? And so there's only like three or four people there, and one of the lay elders gets up, and he starts to share the Word of God, and he uses Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, which says, look to me and be saved, all of you, to the ends of the earth. And he began to explain that, and what he said to the two or three or four or whoever were there, he said, you don't have to lift a finger to look. All you got to do is just look. And then this little man starts to speak out of just his own experience. And he says, if Jesus were standing here, Jesus would say, look to me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look to me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look to me. I've died and I've been buried. Look to me. I'm risen and I'm ascended and I'm going to the right hand of the Father. Look to me. And that was an amazing moment for Spurgeon because he realized that all he had been trying to do, good, was no good. And all he needed to do Look to Jesus. 
who, my friend, has been lifted up and has taken on all the sin that is yours and that is mine. And there on the cross, lifted up, he's asking you and I to look to him and his work of redemption. But not just there on the cross to see him and be healed but to look to him in the power of the resurrection that the Holy Spirit can bring to you life and you can live this new birth in all of the fullness that God has for you and I. Look to Jesus and by repentance and by faith, having done your part, find rest in him today. So may God open our eyes to see this Jesus high and lifted up. Here's the end of the story that I want to bring to you today. We leave Nicodemus here. We wonder about him. I'm, I'm sure I had questions the first time I read this, this gospel. You know, gosh, I wonder what happened to him. Until I got over into the end of the book. And there he is. Nicodemus is there. He's right there. And you know what he's doing? He's saying, can we have the body? We just want to take care of the body. You know what he meant? He meant we're going to take this body of Jesus and we're going to wrap it as is proper for burial. And we're going to put spices and incense on it. And we're going to take care of it. All right? Not only him, but this rich man from Arathamea, uh, they together took the body. Both of them are Pharisees. Both of them are in the, 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 the governing body. And they are not afraid at this point to be identified with Jesus. They're willing to be tender and to take him. They died to all of these things that had been governing them and telling them who they were. And you know what? In that moment, their identity did not matter because they wanted only to take care of the Savior. When we die to ourselves and we lay down our personal identities... And we take on the identity of sons and daughters of God. It changes us. It makes us different. We respond differently. We lose our reputations. We lose care about who we are. Things don't matter so much that used to matter all. And we become servants of God. Children, sons and daughters in a family with a pure identity that gives us the rest and the hope for a future. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus right now. God, we know that this new birth in us comes through faith and through turning, through repentance. But we also know, God, that it brings significant change. I ask you, God, that you would speak to our hearts. What are the things that need to be the signs of the new birth in our lives? What are the things that evidence to others that we are indeed born again? Father, we thank you that we're saved by faith alone. But it's not a faith that remains alone. We thank you that we're not saved by our works. But we ask you, God, that you would give us the works to do that are evidence that we indeed really are saved because our lives have been changed 
and because we're able now to be obedient and faithful and effective in the kingdom. I thank you for Nicodemus. I thank you for Joseph of Arathamea. I thank you for these men as an example to us that we can lay down everything that we had been using to make us good because it doesn't matter anymore. And I thank you, Father, that we are born again by your Spirit. And so we pray, Father, that in the name of Jesus, you will give us the faith and the courage to walk in the new identity that you have given to us. We say, Abba, Father, may we be your sons and daughters and receive the fullness of your love in such confidence that we may come boldly to the throne. Would you open our eyes to see as we've never seen before, Lord. And even today, may we run to you. May we look to you and to no other. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.